think it's just plain sick that Christians and especially pastors are so obsessed with sexuality. This was the statement that was made to me the last time I talked about homosexuality, which was many years ago. Now, if you think that was just an offshoot, I actually can remember the first three days after I preached about homosexuality in the context of sexuality, I received almost 15 plus messages, most of which I wouldn't be able to read to you uh, today. So this was a quote from a loyal Facebook fan who I used to know, and they just thought, It takes a lot for me to ban you, I'm just saying. And, and what they had to say to me was, was far worse than whatever they were accusing me of. But I, I would say to you, the, the reason why this person and the many who messaged me said what they said was because there is a narrative in the culture that Christians talk so much about sexuality. And as I shared with you last week, the opposite is actually true. The reason that people in the culture feel that way is because any voice that says something different from what the culture has accepted automatically is, is the desire is to silence that voice. If you dissent or you disagree to the collective or the consensus, then you need to be silenced. And so I can understand, there was a time in my life, half of my life, I did not believe in Jesus. Half of my life, I lived in sexual immorality, or part of my life, I lived in sexual immorality. So I can understand why people say that, because when I wasn't a Christian, I was not interested in what this said. I didn't want anybody to tell me what this said. I didn't want to know truth. I didn't want to know what God thought. I did not care. I did not believe in God. So none of that mattered to me. I simply just wanted that to be silent so I could live however I want to live. But I would tell you today that we actually need pastors and churches to talk more about sexuality so that it balances out in such a way where we become more and more healthy. The Christian church has held a very consistent view regarding homosexuality for almost 2,000 years. And over 30 years ago, you would never hardly hear a pastor talk about homosexuality because they didn't need to. It didn't come up as much 30, 40 years ago. And so they preached about sin and they preached about heaven and they preached about hell and they preached about sanctification and the fruit of the spirit and so on. But they rarely would they ever talk about sexuality, let alone homosexuality. So why are we talking about this today? And the answer is very simple, because the culture has changed. And because the culture has changed, we actually do need to walk through what God's perspective really is. And I would tell you today that LGBTQ perspectives and rights have become a primary issue of the current culture, which is why we're diving into this. So what do we do? That's the question. What do we do? And we have been following the trajectory for many years as a church that we go to God's word and we also look to the person of Jesus Christ. And here's what it says about Jesus as we seek to do just that. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, the word became flesh. That's the incarnation of Christ and made his dwelling among us. He came here to our, our planet And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, now notice this, full of grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth. Do you agree that we need both? And here's what we know when we don't find both. Truth without grace breeds self-righteous legalism. 
it poisons a church and it pushes people away from Christ. We know that. But grace without truth breeds moral indifference and it keeps people from seeing their need for the gospel of Jesus. So we want to follow Jesus, who is a perfect example of both grace and truth. And so what I'd like to do today as we approach a subject like homosexuality is I want to answer some larger questions and maybe some actually micro questions within that as we go forward. And so the first question is this, what does the culture say about homosexuality? I'd like to show you this picture to start, and this is a Gallup poll that goes from 2012 all the way to 2021. And I want you to notice something on this Gallup poll, if you can read it. In 2012, 3.5% of the United States population identified as LGBTQ. In 2021, 7.1% identified as LGBTQ according to Gallup polls. In 2023, it's actually uh, quite a bit higher. Now, I want to show you some other pictures. This is picture two and three, some important facts that I would like you to know. On your right, you'll notice something in some of these bubbles. And the first one is at the top, and it says this, 55, almost 55% of people who identify as LGBTQ call themselves bisexual. Now, this, of course, means that I'm attracted to both men and women. And so whenever we have the conversation about LGBTQ, you have to broaden your thinking. We often don't realize that people, over half of those who are in this category and consider themselves this, automatically say, I'm attracted to both. Today, the word is bisexual plus. It's called pansexual because we see it as a genderless society in the culture. We don't see gender. I'm blind to gender, so I'm attracted to whomever I'm attracted to, whatever I'm attracted to. That's called pansexual. That's the new term today, in case you haven't heard that. But it's an important statistic for us to consider. And the second thing from this, there's a lot of information here, but I want you to notice here on, on your left, can you see the generational change? When you look at the boomers and the Xers and the millennials, look at Gen Z. What you notice is that every generation doubles in how many people are identifying as LGBTQ. And that's concerning. How is that even possible? Well, Bill Maher, who's a political commentator and atheist, I'm not recommending his show nor his comments, but he made this comment on his show. He said, in every generation, in response to the Gallup polls, The number of those who identify as LGBTQ doubles, and if we follow this trajectory, the math says that everyone will be gay in 2054. Do the math. Just do the math. You start with the boomer generation. He's not wrong. Now, did he get a lot of backlash for that comment? Um, He did, and so I thought I'd bring up uh, an atheist so that uh, you could save your email. But pick four. Pick four shows us this. One in five Gen Z persons identifies as LGBTQ, and that number is, is growing. There's something to be concerned about, and really a lot of questions that, that should be asked about this. And I just want to give you a little bit of, of an idea of, of how things have changed. Because a lot of you, uh, depending on your age, you just remember a day when nobody ever spoke up about being same-sex attracted. You remember those days and you're like, we got to go back to the good old days. (laughs) And then some people today are like, well, the reason that nobody identified as that is because they were suppressed. And there's a lot of conflict and hostility between what really is the truth of of all that. But I just want to show you how different the culture has shifted from 1997 until today. So in 1997, Ellen DeGeneres the lead character of ABC sitcom series called Ellen, she became the first openly gay lead character in television. 
There was so much backlash about this that many networks affiliated with that network did not air the show where she openly came out and then actually disputed ever showing her show, at least for a period of time. Now, just fast forward 17 years. In 2013, Phil Robertson, who is one of the leaders of Duck Dynasty, you know, the backwoods Louisiana culture, if you're interested, he was interviewed by a, a secular media outlet and he was asked about his views on homosexuality. So he shared his views in the rough way that Phil Robertson would talk. And here's basically what he said when he was asked. He said, everything is blurred on what is right and what is wrong. Sin becomes fine. Start with homosexual behavior and just morph out from there. Bestiality, sleeping around with this woman, that woman, that woman, those men, on and on, he kind of says. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. When he was done with the interview, within a few days, he was fired from the network. And then because of a massive backlash, the entire crew or the entire set said they were going to step down unless they hired Phil back. And in three days, they hired him back <laughs> because as many would say, money makes the world go around. So he got hired back and uh, that became an, out, uh, an uproar uh, from the conservative side. So here's what you have. You have 17 years before that, you have nobody could even picture somebody coming out as gay, same-sex attracted in the public spotlight. Fast forward 17 years in 2013, now it's so celebrated, you can't imagine anybody having anything to say. And if they don't say it the way that they're supposed to say it, certainly they're going to get canceled. Ten years later from 2013 today, it's even, it's even worse. I'm not making a martyr out of anybody. I'm just telling you that the culture has absolutely changed. And so if you say that homosexuality is not innate and you don't accept or agree with, you are hateful, you are bigoted, you are prejudiced, and you are homophobic. That's the reality of our world um, today. So you can imagine what it means to have a biblical sexual ethic. It's practically spiritual warfare today. So here's some things that the culture believes when we talk about homosexuality. Next, or two weeks from now, we're going to talk about gender and design, transgenderism and so on, but we're just going to focus right now on same-sex attraction. These are things the culture espouses and believes. Number one, some people are born gay. This is the understanding of sexual orientation. Now, here's what I want to say to that. There have been thousands of studies, and still there is no compelling genetic, biological, physiological, or chromosomal evidence of this. There's none. There's no gay gene. There's no evidence of this. Now, I did read some interesting studies this last week where people are trying to suggest that the studies are somewhat conclusive, but even the American Psychological Association would agree that there is no conclusive evidence to this. And so here's what we have. The issue is psychological. It's what someone thinks in their mind. What I think, what I feel becomes my orientation. In other words, it is what I am. Now, I want to push back on that idea for a couple reasons. Number one, I just showed you 55% of people identify as bisexual, which means they're attracted to either. And it's very popular today to be pansexual. I'm attracted to anything, genderless or whatever that might mean. And so this obviously provides a contradiction. Another contradiction today is the ex-gay movement. 
There are people who, as they were young, they would say, I've always felt that I was same-sex attracted. But as they got older, some of them got born again, and they realized, I'm not gay, I just had feelings and attractions, and as a result of that, I gave myself over to an identity, and now I choose that this is not who I am because of what the Bible says, or they just decide to move from what they thought they were to actually what they have been designed to be. And this is a very important contradiction, because for anybody to just suggest that people are born gay, they're telling those that are ex-gay that their experience of transition is not valid. And this is an important distinction that we have to make. We have to wrestle with these tensions. Now, many of us have friends and family that are same-sex attracted or gay, and um, some of us in our church are same-sex attracted. And the more people that I talk to that call themselves gay or are same-sex attracted, the more I hear this. They say to me, Pastor Ben, I did not choose to be gay. As long as I can remember back as a kid, I remember being attracted to the same sex. So when I hear Christians say that this is a choice, it doesn't feel like a choice to me. And so here's what I would say to that. The fact is, is that we live on a broken planet and we all have feelings and thoughts, attractions and ideas that are not in keeping with God's design. And so this is the, the Christian church should not be the people that bash folks because this is something that they discovered in themselves. What we are is a people who follow Christ into sanctification and what he says is true. And so there are a lot of things that we really do need to understand quite a bit better. But I would tell you this, being born with a predisposition does not mean that you're given to predetermination. Just because you feel this way when you're young does not mean that that's what God made you. That's not what that means. We can still resist and surrender to Jesus. Number two, gay people have been suppressed and marginalized and still are. This is what the culture says. And the fact is, some people have been. And we just need to own that. Doesn't mean you did that. I don't speak for all of us, but it has happened. People have been bullied, harmed, mistreated, and this is wrong and horrible. And as Christians, we just need to say that the mistreatment of anyone for any reason is not acceptable and we condemn it. We just condemn it. It should be that simple. But the other side of this, today at least, is that disagreement and, and speech can equal violence. And so we're living in a culture today that if you say, I disagree that people have to live homosexual lifestyles, I disagree with this as being from God, when you say that, it can actually equal violence or threatening hate speech. And I disagree with that. But that's how far the pendulum has swung. And so we're living in the middle of tension where we condemn. Nobody should be bullied. Nobody should be harmed. Nobody should be mistreated. But on the other end of that, if I say I disagree with this, and this is what the Word of God says, that shouldn't equal persecution. We can disagree and make a point without making an enemy, but this is the wrestling in the culture. Number three is the gay lifestyle is just as normal and healthy as heterosexuality. I want to push back on this, and I want to encourage you to read a book called A Practical Guide to Culture, where the authors reveal statistics that are from all over the place, including the CDC, that contrast homosexual marriage and relationship to heterosexual marriage and relationship, and they use categories like faithfulness, promiscuity, how many partners, and STDs. And I want you to look side by side at what heterosexual marriage and relationship looks like and what homosexual marriage and relationship looks like. And I want you to actually do the research if you have a conflict with this because they are drastically different. Now, sometimes people will say to me, well, that's not everyone. And that's true. 
That's true. But there is an overwhelming majority of confusion and difficulty and pain within homosexual relationships that does not mirror in the same way to that which is heterosexual. Now, do heterosexual couples and marriages have problems? You bet they do. <laughs> and I called you out last week, all right? So we're just continuing the conversation. But I do think that's an important thing is that when you, when you look at sitcoms or you read books or you listen to the cultural narrative, the, the picture is being painted as though there isn't pain and difficulty and some really serious issues when in fact there are. But you're not going to hear those studies because they're being buried. They are being buried because of the cultural narrative and how strong it is. Number four, homosexuality has no conflict with religious beliefs. Of course, we're talking about Christianity because that's what we are today. But I want to tell you, queer theology is relatively new. The most popular books that would say the Bible is okay with people being LGBTQ, that God made people this way, and we celebrate that. And monogamous same-sex relationships, um, God's not offended by that. God, in fact, wants to bless that and made people for that. The people that teach that from the Bible, that's relatively new theology. And you could find some books back in the 60s and 70s, but the 80s and 90s where it, is where it really got popular. And now today, there's a plethora of books that you can read. But you have to think about it a little bit because this is new theology. And so when we look at what does the Christian church believe about this, we have to acknowledge that the church is divided into probably what I would call four camps. And this information doesn't come from me, but this, is, uh, this has been presented by a lot of different books, which I've given you resources on your, on your notes. So I want to show you a graphic. I'm not sure that you can read all of this, but the church is divided into four positions on uh, LGBTQ issues. The first one is going to be on your left, and this is the camp which they're calling them revel. They revel in this. Um, sometimes this is referred to as side A, and these people who believe with this or align themselves with this, they believe God made people gay, and there's nothing wrong with it, and they practice monogamous same-sex marriage and relationships within the category of fidelity. So they believe there's nothing wrong with this. That's, that's side A. Side B is what's next to it, left two. They believe I was probably born this way, but God calls me to surrender my sexuality to him, even though it will not change. And my call, therefore, is to be celibate for the rest of my life. And I will do that, uh, I will do that joyfully as I follow Jesus. That's their position. And then as you go to the right, the first one is, would say this, same-sex attraction is my weakness. It's part of the fall. I still experience it. It probably won't go away, but that is not who I am and it is not what I do any longer by the grace of Jesus. So they basically take same-sex attraction and put it into the context of sanctification. That I surrender to him, I belong to him, my identity is in him. But this category of people doesn't necessarily believe that God will transform them and, uh, in, into something other than. Now the fourth category is, would believe this. Same-sex attraction is weakness. Uh, it's my weakness. It's from the fall, but it's also nurtured. There are variables when I was young or somewhere along the way or culture or otherwise could, could, could be from things that have happened to you. They also believe God can transform me from the inside out, and they entirely see this issue through the eyes of sanctification. So wherever you land on this, I would just tell you side A is an apostate position. That's what I teach. It's an apostate position to believe that God made people this way and he blesses same-sex marriage is not biblically true. So I just want to be clear about that. But some people say you can have this position and still hold to Orthodox Christianity. 
Um, that might be a dispute among some, maybe mainline denominations, but certainly is not true in the evangelical church. And that's been forever. So this isn't, what I'm telling you is not new. Now on the other ones, so th- uh, two, three, and four, people fight over those ones and you can do that. If you want to know where Pastor Ben is, I am over here in three and four. That's where I'm at. So I'm just letting you know. Now, you're, you're asking the question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Everybody, could you just breathe? Oh my gosh. <laughs> guys look so tense. You guys look so tense. I mean, I'm, are you happy? I woke up happy and you're not changing that. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? All right. Somebody just woke up. That's right. Amen. Number one, God created men and women for covenant relationship. I covered this last week. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the male and female and brought the two together in covenant relationship and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's what God told them. And so this was the original covenant relationship called marriage. In fact, God designed men and women differently, and even in their design, obviously, they come together. So not to go too far in the genitalia conversation, but God literally designed bodies specifically to come together. Now, that might sound barbarian to some people, but it is in our design. It's in our design. And so to reject or to resist what you've been made all right, is, is it, this is an important distinction that we make. The Bible tells us, makes it very simple. Number two, sex is God's gift within male-female covenant relationship. He said to Adam and Eve, have sex and create babies, be fruitful and multiply. This gives us the first picture of sexuality and shows us two specific things. Number one, God created people heterosexual from the beginning, and it's built into who we are. Second, a primary purpose of our sexuality is to have children. It's not our only purpose because some will say, well, what about those that can't have kids? Or I won't get into this today, but what about single people? Because there's a lot of people that won't be married and certainly won't have children as a result of that. We'll talk about that at a different time. But people will say, well, it's not just procreation. And that's true. That's why we have a whole book called Song of Songs that you've read a lot in your life that is devoted to intimacy, pleasure, and, and romance. And I just recommend married couples, like, you know, on your off-season, man, just go ahead and read that to each other. Every now and again, I read that to my wife. I do. I say, you are like a gazelle (laughs) hopping through the meadows as you frolic and gallop through the meadow and the weeds ever so softly. And your gentle touch, it reminds me of a spring of living water. I mean, I just think it's amazing. You know, you should read that to your spouse and see what face they give you. You just, just feel like it's powerful. From this point on, though, the Bible presents a healthy sexual expression solely in the context of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. Now, number three is really important. From the Bible, we are called to guard against all forms of deviant sexual expression. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage Again, marriage, context, male, female, should be honored by everyone and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge who? The adulterer, the person that breaks covenant, and God will judge the sexually immoral, people that engage in sexual activity outside of God's design. So in God's design, amen, this is what God has brought together. Outside of that, you break the covenant, God will judge that person. Now there's redemption for people, of course, But the sexually immoral, those that practice something other than what God designed, it is simply saying we guard against that. 
And it isn't because we're so against all forms of sexual expression. I told you that we all are sexually broken, but it's that we so love covenant and what God made that we want to keep it, protect it, and hold it and cherish it as it really is. That's our passion. That's our passion. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 5, Paul says to the church, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to possess your own vessel. You know how to have self-control in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. You don't just do what you feel and think. That's what he's saying. You don't just do what you feel and think. You don't become sexually immoral. The word abstain doesn't just mean don't do something. It means be distant from it. Abstain from, be distant. Go as far away from this as you can. And that's all forms of sexual activity outside of God's design. We talked about pornography last week. We may not have, like the Corinthians, temples with thousands of prostitutes, but we certainly have thousands of websites that we go to, don't we? And that is a generational thing. God's intended purpose for one man and one woman within the context of marriage is a beautiful thing. Sexuality is a beautiful thing, and our culture has made it ugly, cheapened it, spent this currency in a way where it's meaningless, and God wants us to reclaim that. But when Paul says this to the people, you have to remember the Jews had the law containing all the moral prohibitions, but the Gentiles did not, and they were raised in a culture that not only tolerated sexual immorality, but they celebrated it. So when Paul says this to them, he's saying, you need to protect what God's given because this other stuff will destroy you. And can I just tell you, all sexual sin will destroy us. All sexual sin will destroy us. And as we stand before God, we want to be right with him, but we also want to understand why he gave us what he did because this is his design and his desire. The call to abstain from it was called sanctification. And he was saying to them, you're not like everyone else. So give yourself to the Lord wholly and completely. So God's provision for sexuality is clear from the Bible, celibacy for the single and fidelity for the married. Now, number four is homosexuality is a sexual expression that is thoroughly condemned in the Bible. There are six passages, and if people are really against this, they call them clobber passages. But I just want to be very clear. Here's what it says. Leviticus 18.22 says, do not have sex with the same sex. It's very, very clear. Leviticus 20.13, if anyone has homosexual sex, they must be put to death. Now, that's a shock. Like, that's crazy. But in the Old Testament, there were a number of things that people would be put to death for. If you falsely prophesied, you would be put to death. There's a, a ton of stuff that this would be the case. But I think a lot of folks misunderstand the law and why it was given. Now, this is an important piece. When the children of Israel came out of slavery for 400 years in Egypt, God was sending them to the promised land. Okay, just think about that. They had been indoctrinated in Egypt. They come out into the wilderness, and one of the first things that they do is they start to worship the golden calf that they created. Well, why did they do that? Because they came from a polytheistic culture, and that's what they were accustomed to. And it says that they had a sexual orgy. That's what the children of Israel, I mean, I know that some of the Bibles, you know, the Adventure Bible, the Action Bible, definitely, and the Message Bible, they sugarcoat this. But the truth is, and you won't see it on a Hallmark card, but the reality is, is that while Moses is up on the mountain, the people are down worshiping a golden calf from the gold that they all got from the Egyptians, and they're having a sexual party. So God is sanctifying them in the wilderness, and he's telling them when you go into the land of Canaan where they have sexual practices, 
I don't want you to be like them, and I'm going to treat you with such severity that this is how serious I am. Your sexuality is serious to me because it will destroy the entirety of your camp. Now, you just have to think about it from God's eyes. Why would God say this to them? Now, here's another piece. A lot of folks don't understand God's severity in the Old Testament, particularly with Israel, had a lot to do with preserving the messianic line. That is how the Messiah came forth. The Messiah came forth from a virgin that was of the line of David. So God was preserving the messianic line because he made an oath, a prophecy, that this is where the Messiah will come from. So when he refers to sexuality in a serious way, you understand that God is bringing forth the Messiah through a very specific lineage. And he says to them, do not deviate from this path because I'm doing something that's bigger than you. So he took a people, Israel, set them apart from the nations, gave them a holy calling, set them apart for the law, the priests, the sacrificial system, and then brought forth Jesus. So when he says, if you do this, you'll die, he had something bigger going on and it isn't contradictory for who God is in his character. We just misunderstand that he had a very serious purpose and a holy calling for Israel. So when we read about the severity of Father God in the Old Testament, oftentimes people say that doesn't look like Jesus in the New Testament at all, but that is because we fail to understand what God had to do to bring forth Jesus so that all people could come back into relationship with God. We don't appreciate what God had to do in order to bring that even about. Now, that part was free, and I just wanted to explain a little bit of that, and I kind of opened a can, and I can't go any further. But Romans 1.26 says unrestrained homosexual expression is a rejection of God's will and design. That's literally what Paul says to the Roman church. Jude chapter 1 verse 7, there's only one chapter. It says Sodom and Gomorrah was an example of unrestrained sexual expression in a city and they were judged for it. 1 Timothy 1.8 says homosexuals are listed uh, along with others as those who rejected God's truth. He just gives this huge list. Not the only ones that were listed there. I mean, he talks about drunkards and swindlers and I mean, he lists all these people together. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 11 says the effeminate and the homosexual. So the, this would be like the passive and the active partner in a homosexual relationship. He's basically saying both of these people are going to be judged by God and will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he lists them next to the adulterer, the idolater, the fornicator, the covetous, the drunkard, the reviler, the swindler. And he says these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, listen. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. He's saying, you used to be this and do this, but because you're in Christ, it's no longer who you are. And so the entire conversation about homosexuality as we get to transgenderism is that when you come to Christ, it's not about how you were born, it's that you're born again. And now that you're born again, you're in Christ. And what he says is what God has called you to. Now, you might have conflicting desires and feelings and temptations and attractions. All of us do in one way or another, every single person. But Jesus dealt with that at the cross. And even if we have to submit to him every single day, whatever that might be, that is our sanctification in Christ. So this conversation is not us and them. As I've told you, many in our church struggle with same-sex attraction. Many of our youth struggle with same-sex attraction. But what we need to teach them is not that you won't have this, it's what to do with this. You're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, he gives you the grace that you need. So you might feel this, you might be tempted by this, but you don't have to submit to this. And that's the way of Jesus. 
And so as much as we say that the Bible is against homosexuality, it is because God made us a certain way and we are found in him. And that's why all of this is about identity in Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want to jump to some common objections to a biblical sexual ethic. I hold to a biblical sexual ethic. We teach that. Um, I'm passionate about it, but it's not just because of what I'm against, it's what I'm for. But these are the things that people will say to me or to others in objection to that. So number one, Christians have misinterpreted the Bible on many things, including homosexuality. They'll say, sanctioning slavery, segregation, racism, oppressing women, and of course, the dignity of those who are gay. People have used this book to condemn almost everybody. And here's what I would like to say to that. That, my friends, is actually true. People have used this, misused this book. Is that true? Can I, can I just get some agreement? <laughs> some of you grew up in a household where they used this book to get you to do chores. Amen. This book was just misused. I misuse the book occasionally to say that the Bible says Jesus is coming back for a church without spot and wrinkles. You all should come ironed up. I don't know what's wrong with you. What is wrong with you? People misuse this book. And so what does that mean? Does that mean, well, let's just throw it all out because who can? No, 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 no. That means we dig into this book like the Bereans did in the book of Acts to find what is true. It's not about what I think. My, my opinions, that's why I pray. You hear me pray. Let it fall to the ground. I, I'm not compassionate enough. I'm not smart enough. And neither are you. We just want to follow God. We want to dig into his word. And I've said this to you many times. You can disagree with me at any time, but please disagree with the Bible. Disagree with the Bible. Go to the Bible. You go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Because if you don't go to the Bible, you're going with your opinion and we're not God. And God's wisdom was to give us a book, amen, so that all of us were accountable to the same standard. I love his wisdom. It's awesome. It's like, I know these people are gonna be so messed up. I'm gonna give them a book. And so all their disagreements, so there it is. And throughout time and history, I'm even going to make it easier and give them like address and, and 1551 where the Bible actually got, you know, chapters and verses. Aren't you thankful for that? Otherwise, it'd just be this sea of text. <laughs> it's somewhere on page 175. I mean, we thank God that it's, you know. So when people say Christians have misinterpreted the Bible, I would say the failures of the past are not a justification to overlook and rightly handle the area of sexuality. Number two, there are very few passages in the Bible that even discuss homosexuality. Now, there are six directly against it, but there are hundreds that are pro-heterosexuality in direct reference. So that's a very incorrect and misleading statement. Number three, the Levitical laws in the Old Testament are not relevant for today. And this is a misunderstanding of context from Old Covenant law. Some laws in Leviticus were specific to the people of Israel. And you can actually tell which ones were when it talks about shellfish. And I mean, some of you are just totally disobeying the Levitical law. You had some crab and lobster recently, and you were like in full defiance of the dietary restrictions in Leviticus. And you were like, I don't even care. Like, it's all grace. Somewhere along the way, we've accepted and we understand this, and, and I would say it to you this way, there are different categories of Old Testament law, and you need to get this. 
So a lot of the rebuttals that the culture will give, and even sometimes in Christian camps, it is a misunderstanding and a bad, bad theology on why God gave the law, what it's for, and what actually continues beyond the cross of Jesus. I would say to you this, moral prohibitions that are universal have been affirmed in the New Testament, even the same language when it comes to homosexuality. There's just no dispute when it comes to this. Number four, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, and that is not true. Jesus affirmed covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. He condemns all forms of sexual morality, even at the heart level. In Matthew chapter five, he talks about lusting in your heart. He goes even farther. And Jesus presented the idea that there were eunuchs for the kingdom who would never have sexual activity. Now, you haven't heard a message on that recently, I bet. But how many of you who got on fire for God... I'm stepping out there, okay? How many of you got on fire for God at one time in your life and you considered, you know what? I may be, in fact, a eunuch for the kingdom. There's more of you than that little laugh, all right? I actually thought that about myself. I, got, I came out of sexual sin and all that stuff, that bondage, and I was so gloriously free by God from my drugs and alcoholism and all, the, all this stuff when I was a kid. I just was so free. I was like, I just want to serve the Lord, and uh, I was like, I don't want to mess around because I only had bad relationships. So it was easy to think there's no way to have a good one, right? There's just, for me, there's no way to have a good one. So I automatically thought God has separated me to be a eunuch for the kingdom. And all of my mentors just shook their head and said, you're internally like you're crazy. <laughs> and so I've grown up, right? Amen. I've grown up and God gave me a wonderful woman to do kingdom partnership with. Number five, the biblical writers never condemn monogamous same-sex marriage. That's not true. The Bible only supports heterosexual marriage as God's design for covenantal love where sex is a gift. Now, Matthew Vines in his book, The God and the Gay Christian, he actually admits this. He actually does say that there's not one positive verse for homosexuality in the entire Bible. And that's actually one of the most popular books that's read today. So he takes on the argument as a gay Christian is what he calls himself. As a gay Christian, he says that... The Bible doesn't actually contextually speak about relationships between the same sex. This was not a context. And that's actually been debunked. Historically, that's been debunked. There were plenty of people that were in same-sex relationships. There are plenty of people that would consider whatever marriage was in the different contexts. You have Roman world, Greek world. You know, that, that's actually not true. But he makes the argument. And it's really, culturally, it's a better argument than queer theology, honestly. In my opinion, I think that's a better argument. I don't agree with them, but that's a, that's a better argument. But this is not a true statement. Number six is many churches and Christian leaders disagree on the issue of homosexuality. That's true. <laughs> I showed you the chart. But Christians, leaders, pastors, churches disagree on a lot of stuff. They disagree on a lot of stuff. I would challenge you. We all maybe interpret this in different ways, but I want to say something, is that any person that I've ever known that has gone LGBTQ affirming, meaning that God either created people as gay or has allowance for it in same-sex marriage. Any person I have ever met that has gone down that road has also compromised other things in the Bible. I asked Dr. Michael Brown what he thought about this, and he does an extensive research on it, and he basically says there are two reasons that people become gay affirming as churches, Christians, and pastors. The first is moral failure. So there's something in the closet that they're not talking about. This is why when some pastors, and you should be discerning, when some pastors or podcasters or preachers or books, when they advocate grace at such a level where you almost feel like sinning doesn't matter anymore, you should be suspicious. 
If all we do is advocate grace, 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 and not truth, there's not a balance of truth and grace, I am telling you there is probably something back here, or that person is fighting a religious context from which they came from. Those are probably only the two reasons that they do that. So they grew up in a form of religion, and they're bucking that by saying it's all grace, it's all grace, because they never really met a loving father and his son Jesus Christ in the right way. And so they're kind of fighting that religious background, or they've got some sin in their life, and it makes them feel better to overemphasize the grace and not mention the standards of God and the truth that's found in the Word, in the word of God. So we always have to fight this tension. But I would tell you also that Michael Brown said that it wasn't just moral failure, but it was also doctrinal error, and it had to do with the inerrancy of Scripture. And I have found that, and I would challenge you, take a look at every denomination that has split. We're talking about Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Anglicans, and even Catholics. Look at how they have split over this issue. And the progressive churches have gone down that road, and it is always an issue on what they believe about the Bible. It is always an issue about what they believe about the Bible, because you can't throw out what the Bible says about sexuality, homosexuality, and gender, if you throw that out, you are actually saying that there are going to be other things that you will also throw out as well. And history shows this to be true, specifically in denominational splits. Now, to be really transparent with you, our denomination has a view that if I were to go LGBTQ affirming, I would no longer be your pastor. I just want to make it really clear. And I know that because we have dismissed a handful of pastors because they did go LGBTQ affirm, affirming. Some of them were my friends. I still love them. I consider them Christians, but it's an apostate position as far as I can tell in terms of their theology. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I am just saying for them to tell a person that God celebrates and tolerates what actually he's calling you to repent of and submit and surrender, that is a grievous sin before God. That is a grievous sin before God. It is not something that we should wink at and say it doesn't matter. That's a grievous sin, not just in homosexuality, but in anything. It's not okay. Because we're telling people who could find freedom and life and surrender and fulfillment in Christ, we're telling them that they should just be okay with what's going on in them. That's not okay. Don't do that to me in any of my struggles, and I won't do that to you. We hold the tension of Scripture, and we have to do that because God is God, and we follow Him. That's the tension. And yes, some people struggle, and, and I hate that. I hate that. But just like you, mothers and fathers, walk with your kids, and you see their struggle, and you feel for them. You want them to have more. You want them to be fulfilled. You don't want them to go through that struggle. God has a lot of kids, and he feels that way, which is why Jesus stepped into our world and gave his life for us. That's what he did. Just like fathers and mothers will try to step into the world of their children when they're struggling and do whatever they can to pull them up and pull them out of that. That's what God did in Christ. And that's why we have to magnify Christ. He's the change agent in, in all of this. Number seven, it's cruel and impractical to ask a same-sex attracted person to stay single for the rest of their life. Now, that sounds appealing naturally, but Jesus was single, Paul was single, Many who follow Jesus are single, and he calls every person to carry the cross 
and suffer in one way or another. But the call is to give your entire life. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I know the cultural message of Christianity today is that you can just add Jesus to your party and, uh, and see him in heaven someday. Forgiveness for when I sin and heaven when I die, but never mind sanctification, never mind submission and surrender, never mind the tension of truth. That's, that might be cute and that might sound great from all these Uh, from all these places where people are are theologizing all this, but the truth is without repentance, you're not going to get fulfilled in Christ. He calls us to lay down everything. That's the call. The call is everything, your sexuality, your finances, everything that you are, you give it to Jesus. It's everything. It's all or nothing. And whatever we don't put on the altar becomes our idol. Whatever we withhold from God no matter for what, we, what reason it might be, whatever we withhold from God, that thing is our idol because we're saying, I'll follow you, but I need to keep this. That's our idol. So whether it's sexuality or what, whatever it is. Number eight, God is love and the rules no longer apply as long as people love one another. And I would say God is love, but that doesn't mean love is God, humanly speaking. In our culture, we normally hear things like love wins, love is love, all you need is love. And these statements sound right and they sound good, but they are subjective to the speaker and they they are open to interpretation. So if God is love and he is, then he defines it for all of his creation, which of course comes from his word. God is love, but he defines what love means for every single one of us, not our version of love. And thanks be to God for that because some days love means something entirely different to me, especially when I'm thinking about (laughs) self-love. I don't want to take out the garbage and I don't want to mow the lawn, Bridget. (laughs) I'm loving myself today. And God loves me today, okay? It's not always about you. (laughs) She's not in the service, so you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Christians, number nine, Christians need to stop obsessing over homosexuality. And I would uh, rebuttal that by saying, actually, uh, we need to teach more about sexuality among our youth and children. And potentially, the problem that we have today within the culture that we're a part of is uh, partially our fault, if we could be honest about it. Many of us grew up and never heard anything about sexuality, ever. Here's what we heard, don't do it. That's not enough. So if you failed in that, repent and then do what you can. Don't live in the bondage and the, the guilt of the past, but friends, I'm telling you, if your grandparents and you, did, you feel like you didn't do it right the first time, then pray for your kids to do, it, to do better. And uh, sometimes I talk to my parents and they say things like, you're doing a better job than we ever did. And (laughs) see, now they understand their goal is to now support their kids, that where they feel like they failed, instead of talking about their failures, they're just trying to support their kids to do better than they did. I love that disposition. I hope that I do the exact same thing. Amen? That somehow, some way, we got to rise up and and give to our kids uh, the absolute best because they're facing things that we've never had to deal with. And then I would like to just point out some application points. I'm going to speed through these because uh, we've talked a lot already, and I can just tell that you guys are thoroughly educated and ready to go. <laughs> but thank you for traveling through this with me. There's a lot. I, I, I put so many resources into your notes, and I pray that you, as you dig into this, particularly where you have tension, would you please read and educate yourself more? That's what I do. Pastor Ben, what do you do? I study the Bible every week. I go deep 
and I go as deep as I can, and I struggle to how to convey that to you in 45, 50 minutes. I don't know how to do that very well, particularly in these topics, because I realize there's so much to cover. And so I just gave you some stuff that I've read. If you could read any book, please read Love and Light by Peter Hubbard. Please read that book. It's such a, I mean, he's like a biblical counselor, powerful, important book. I, I'm asking you to read especially for you, those of you that have tension. You have to educate yourself, not just from the culture, but you have to educate yourself from Scripture and people that are diving into this in a very healthy way. So number one, if you struggle with same-sex attraction and you're here today or you're listening, I want to call you to surrender your sexuality to Jesus. I want to call you to surrender your sexuality to Jesus. And just like I said last week, if you're struggling with any area of your sexuality, surrender it to Jesus. If you cannot do that by coming forward after the service, then I'm encouraging you to reach out to one of our pastors. If it's, if it's something you can't do by coming forward today, that's fine, but reach out to somebody. Things don't get better just by saying one prayer in church. We have to engage a process. This is one of those things we have to engage. But Jesus is calling you to lay down your sexuality, if that's you today. Number two is, is we need to teach our kids. I've said that. Number three is we need to resist the culture's narrative regarding homosexuality. And what I mean by that is that we can disagree with what the culture is saying. And we can do it in a respectful, responsible way that carries dignity and honor and explanation and love. You can make a point without making an enemy. And I'm growing very tired of so many Christians who are just so angry. I'm just growing tired of it. I feel like the liberal-minded people are, are allowing truth to be wishy-washy, but the hyper-conservatives, they're so fearful about what's going to happen to our country that they've forgotten that prayer changes things and the gospel still works. And if that's you, stop. The gospel of Jesus transforms people's lives. You take one good look at me. I was a sexually immoral person and I got set free by the gospel of Jesus. And I was annoyed by every person that was fearful behind some computer screen about posting stuff. The world is going to hell. Our culture is going to Yes, everyone is going to hell without the gospel of Jesus. But prayer still works. Go to the prayer room. The gospel still works. Please share it. And sanctification is a process. Encourage it. Your struggles are no different than someone else's. They're struggles. Jesus is the Savior, and he's the sanctifier. So when we resist the culture's narratives, we're talking about disagreeing in healthy ways and believing Jesus at his word. And number four is we need to reach out to people that have same-sex attraction with radical love and radical compassion because every story matters and we need to ask questions and we need to listen well because people who love well are listened to and people who have all the answers get debated. You will not have a fruitful Christian life is all, if all you have is answers and debates for everyone. You have to love people radically. Grace and truth, radical love changes people's lives. How many of you have the story that I have when you were a non-Christian, you rarely experienced real love from people that disagreed with you? This is why Jesus calls us to enemy love. Enemies are not people that we see as enemies. Enemies are people that disagree with us and see us as an enemy, and we still love them no matter what. That's what Jesus calls us to. 
that when someone disagrees with me or sees me as a threat, I love them and I show them that in Christ. And that is a radical demonstration of what Jesus is like. And I think if we showed more of that, more people would want what we have. They just would. Like, wow, I can treat you like this and you still see me like that? I, I, I want that for us. Amen, I want that for us. And then lastly, I'm, I'm closing. I'm, I promise, I'm closing. We need to make Jesus, not homosexuality, the main issue. All sin is the same to God and people who struggle with same-sex attraction, they're no different from any, anybody else. The message is not stop your sexual sin, it's behold the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message. Behold the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel is for all. All have sinned, all need a savior, all need to surrender to Christ because he is Lord. And if you let him, he will wash you, he will cleanse you, he will sanctify you, and he will justify you. And that's what he's really, really good at. And so this is what wakes me up in the morning is seeing people come to know Jesus, find and follow him, give him everything that they are and find fulfillment in him and him alone. Amen. Would you stand? Let me pray for you today. Tiago, you made it, buddy. The whole way through. Would you put your hands out before the Lord? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus today. I thank you for our church. God, we want to hold grace and truth. I admit that I'm not perfect at that. I'm, 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 I want to be better at it. I want us to be better at that. I want us to reach people. And I thank you that you're pouring out your spirit right now on people who identify as LGBTQ. I know what the culture says, but I believe you are pouring out your spirit and you're bringing people to yourself all over this world. And no matter what the media says or political polarity is trying to tell us, what we do know is that the gospel works. Your message is still the most powerful message that is out there. And you are sanctifying us. You're setting people free. And I'm praying for people that are struggling and maybe they feel like they can't tell anybody. Maybe they feel like every time they have told someone that they just get they feel hurt, they feel betrayed. God, I pray for that person right now in the mighty name of Jesus that you would touch their heart and lead them to the right people that can handle this conversation. Let us be a church that can handle this conversation and we can find a better way, a healthier way in all areas of sexuality. And this would be a safe place for people to come to know you, follow you, adhere to what your word says and find the transformation that only you can give. And especially as we do that in community. So God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. Bless your word today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.